All right, you guys, so we are in week 8 of 10. So we're meeting this week, and we're going to cover everything up to, well, 20 and 21 takes us right up to the passion story. And we may get a little, we may get into the passion story a little bit. Next week, we'll cover that, though, because that's Palm Sunday. It works. We're off Easter, of course, and then we'll wrap up that last uh, week of April. So, this is, a lot happens during Holy Week in the Gospels, in general. In, uh, in Mark's Gospel, I want to say it starts, I want to say it starts in chapter 10, like Holy Week. And there's only 16 chapters. I mean, but so 10 of, I mean, it's a a big portion of Mark's gospel is that last little, that last section, that last part of his life. It's not quite that pronounced in Luke, but still, there's still a fair amount that happens. So we tend to think of Holy Week as Palm Sunday and then right to Monday, Thursday, and then Good Friday, of course. Um, But there's some teaching that happens in here. And then there's a whole section there's a whole apocalyptic vision that we have to cover as well. So, um, look, just looking ahead real quick. So, Holy Week, you guys know the schedule. So, Monday, Thursday. I meant to put this up before we started. Good Friday. Those are both 7 p.m. services. And then Easter morning is a modified schedule. So, we have 8 9.30 and 11. And then, of course, there's a 7 a.m. just after sunrise service. And uh, if anybody goes to Modern, Modern's just doing 1 at 11. Okay? So that's... Um, I'm, preaching the th- I'm preaching three. So 7 a.m. is the sunrise service um, by the fountain. And... Uh, I think that's going to be the kids, the youth. We've uh, that you know that got a little unsettled when Paul left, but I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's modern, modern, the modern worship band and the youth group. I'm preaching these three, and then Stephanie's preaching uh, modern service at eleven. Can y'all hear me? Okay, this thing. I have a much better one in the sanctuary. You know, it like it stays. Otherwise, I'd be messing with this thing the whole time. So that's going to be Holy Week's pretty great. So we have the Palm Sunday services are just normal. Kids will be singing. We'll have the palm waving, even though Luke's gospel doesn't have palms, as we discovered last week. We're still going to call it Palm Sunday. Right. Right. Yeah. You can bring their coats, wave them around. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and then the week after that, the 24th, is Youth Sunday. That's also Confirmation Sunday. So we did baptize a baby this morning. Man, we're, church was good this morning. That, he, that baby's six months old. He's little, though. I had him, and Whitney gives me a hard time because my, 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 sorry, I keep messing with this. Um, my tendency with a baby is to, you know, hold him like a baby. And he's like, uh, no, thank you very much. Pick me up, pick me up. But then he's got this, like, did you hear them say it was like his great grandmother's dress, gown, or whatever? Well, that's a lot of fabric with a little tiny baby. And then I got my big dress and I'm like, I'm always afraid I'm going to, you know, they're going to slip somehow, but hadn't happened yet. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit keeps that from happening. Thank God. (laughs) Okay. So Holy Week, 
a busy Holy Week continued. So we ended off last week after the cleansing of the temple. Uh, that, in John's Gospel, is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But all three synoptics have the cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry. Very different, very different set of circumstances when you when it's the first thing. But um, I don't think we're going to have this time. Uh, I don't think we're going to have time this time to do a like a comparison of the four gospels side by side, by side by side. But um, what probably historically happened was the way the synoptics record it, which is that it's the thing that. Um, kind of gets him on the radar of the religious authorities for the final time. I've been listening to, so I listened to uh, Caesar, a book about Caesar. Same author, Adrian Goldsworthy. I'm listening to How Rome Fell. And um, they just didn't play around with people they thought were going to be a threat. I mean, they were, that was a pretty brutal era. So um, you've heard me say this before. I may mention it on Sunday, but the... You know, the Passover is a festival of liberation. And the Jewish population was already unsettled in the first century. And so Pilate would not have, um, he would not have taken any chances at the Passover. Because the Passover is where Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem. It was the one absolutely required festival to be in Jerusalem. There are actually three that you should be at. Passover was the one you had to be at if you couldn't uh, make the others because of poverty or health or whatever, unless you were like on your deathbed or what you had to be there. And so there might be a million people in Jerusalem, the vast majority of them Jewish subjects who were celebrating their freedom from the oppressor. (laughs) And that was a recipe for disaster for the Romans. So Pilate would have first of all, been on high alert, and he would have had plenty of Roman soldiers there, just in case. And so tensions were already high. So for Jesus to have made the stink that he did in the, in the outer courtyard where the, um, the money changers were doing their thing, that would have gotten on everybody's radar. Religious authorities who had a vested interest in the status quo and the Romans, who didn't have any time for rabble-rousing subjects. For the most part, Jews lived in peace um, in the Roman Empire. Rome was pretty tolerant of other religions, as long as they you know, paid taxes and didn't cause any trouble. But the first century um, was a time of, I mean, by the end of the first century, of course, it's the Jewish revolt. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The temple will be almost entirely razed. And so um, that, that first part of the, fir- of the first century was, um, it was, there was just plenty of tension. And so after he cleanses the temple, then it appears that he, he hangs around in the temple and um, teaches. And we're going to read some of it now. So all throughout this gospel, remember, the temple has played a pretty central role. So the story begins in the temple. The story is going to end in the temple, as we'll see in the 24th chapter. And all throughout the gospel, key things have happened in the temple. We've heard over and over again how Jesus is um, entirely a, a, his family is entirely a creature of their uh, era and their religion. They're, They're devout, so they're doing the things that Jews are supposed to do, which means, of course, that he's going to make this pilgrimage to 
Jerusalem for the Passover. But his, it's all, as we know, going to come to a head this week. So, let's go to chapter 20. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and telling the good news, the chief priests and the scribes came with the elders and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Okay, so you have there's some key players here. So the chief priests, uh, one of whom, the high priest, is going to play a significant role later in the story. Scribes, elders, Sadducees, Pharisees, and then, of course, you have Rome. And as we've seen throughout the first 19 chapters of the gospel, he, he has a fair amount of conflict with the religious authorities because he is, he's reinterpreting the tradition. He's telling them that the things that they hold most dear are, in fact, not the most important things to God, which we as Christians read very sympathetically. <laughs> but if we're to put ourselves in, the, in, the, in these people's shoes, I mean, who's he to be telling us that we actually can heal on the Sabbath? And who's he to uh, tell us our laws aren't really that important or that we're getting it wrong? Like, we're the ones in, we're, we're the ones in charge. <laughs> we're the ones who know better. We're the ones who studied this, and he's some nobody from Nazareth, because nobody comes out of Nazareth. So, um, I think it's good from time to time to remind ourselves that we read, as I think uh, Reagan put this in her adult newsletter, we read everything, we see everything, we read everything through resurrection eyes. We know how the story ends, his earthly ministry. We know we have 2,000 years of tradition telling us what we believe, and 2,000 years of tradition is very clear that in the first century, God's people were missing the mark, or at least their leaders were, in significant ways. Um, but when we put ourselves in their context, um, it's, it's possible to see them a little more sympathetically. Now, not to the point where they get him arrested and crucified. I'm not saying that. But it's understandable why he would be seen as a threat. So, they, like, this is a logical question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I'll also ask you a question. And you tell me, did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, I do not believe him. But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And then Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. If you don't know, I don't, I'm not going to tell you. Um, now, now we get into the raw politics of it. Like either you think John was wrong or you don't. Either you think that John uh, had some problems with his ministry or you don't. If you just act out of fear of the crowd, well, then you're not really a leader. Um, if you acknowledge there is some divine aspect of his baptism of repentance, then you've got to kind of rethink some of the things that you're doing. That's threatening to your, to the status quo because at least, uh, Sadducees and Pharisees, that's a category of, um, believer. So it's, they believe certain things. These folks, like the ones in charge had a vested interest in Rome staying in power. 
right? Because they also stayed in power. So you've got the theological challenge that they're dealing with from Jesus. That I can understand sympathetically. Here, uh, you know, they, they stay in power, they stay relatively wealthy, they stay secure if, well, by the end of the spear, by the tip of the spear of Rome. So there's a lot going on in this kind of pressure-packed last week. So then he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenants and went to another country for a long time. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants in order that they might give him his share of the produce of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Next, he sent another slave. That one also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. And he sent still a third. This one also they wounded and threw out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. Not the way it works, obviously. But So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, heaven forbid. But he looked at them and said, what then does this text mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the scribes and the chief priests realized he had told these par- this parable against them, they wanted to lay hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people. So, the wicked tenants are these folks, the leaders. The ones who are willing to kill even the son of the vineyard owner who is God. I mean, that's a very strange... This is not really all that enigmatic. He's not... You don't have to read between the lines all that much. But you notice Luke makes very clear that uh, there's going to be a, a connection between the Jewish leaders and Rome. But where, where are the people? Who's, whose side are the people on? This is a really important point. I mean, the chief priests, that last verse says that they feared the people. So, this group of folks exploits this group of folks. That's the way this always works, by the way. Right? I mean, those in power, not always, but it's a, it's a song that's sung in many different verses throughout human history. The ones with the power and the money uh, keep the power and the money at the expense of of the people, people without power and money. And remember, this gospel author, and we presume his, uh, his, his uh, audience, was, is very concerned about people on the margins. So we've talked about the poor, we've talked about sinners, we've talked about you know, the sick, Certainly widows would be in here. This morning, we talked about the raising of the, of the widow uh, in Nain, widow's son. And I think it's really telling that the emotion that Jesus exhibits is the same one as the prodigal, the, the father of the prodigal. And so there's a, a word in Greek, anoem, which means kind of the uh, the like the dispossessed majority. And we, I mean, 
you all, you know history well enough to know that, like, <laughs> it's a relatively recent phenomenon that lots of people have done really well, <laughs> right? That's not usually the way, that's not the way history has gone. And so uh, Luke's author, or Luke's audience is probably this group here, and he is very careful to distinguish between where the conflict really lies and the folks who were um, kind of victims of the existing power structure. Now, it is the case that lots of these folks go away after the crucifixion because God's doing something brand new. It's going to take a long time for uh, the church to grow, like it builds steam. But remember also that this author is not primarily talking about Jewish Christians. So the the people here are a stand-in for um, like the masses of people who will ultimately come to Christ through the evangelism of the church. And and this is another place where um, keeping in mind that he's got a whole second chapter, a whole second act, the Acts of the Apostles, where he tells that particular story, where these people come to realize that these folks were wrong. That's a major theme in Acts. And that, in fact, they were correct to have had a heart for Jesus, to have, had a, to have wanted to follow him. And um, then people begin to turn to him. And the reason I'm pointing all this out is, uh, you know, anti-Semitism has been a, a massive problem throughout human history. And there are parts of, like, the Gospel of John, which you know I adore, and Matthew, where there seems to be kind of a conflation as though the people who were actually responsible for his death were not the only ones who did who hated Jesus. So you like in Matthew there's a part where the people say let uh, let his blood be on us and our all of our generations forever. And in Matthew um I mean sorry in John there's a whole chapter that's just really awful where um he where Jesus, like John speaking through Jesus, because I don't, I don't think this is historically accurate, but this is John's interpretation, um, is saying that their father is the devil. <laughs> like that's, that's, a, that's a, quite a stretch from people trying to hold on to power, having legitimate concerns about somebody who's making kind of crazy claims about what God's really all about and who are in cahoots with the Romans. We should never lose sight of the fact that there is one person responsible for Jesus' death, Pontius Pilate. He's, he's the one that had the authority. The, go- the Gospels will go to great lengths to shift this responsibility back <laughs> to this group here because the church was trying to make its way in Rome. <laughs> right? You don't want to blame your host <laughs> right? in the era, especially in the era of martyrdom in the, in the late first century. But it seems clear from the historical record, it seems clear from everything like logically that we would um, uh, that we can infer from what happened that the, the issue was with power. Theological problems, I mean, theological disagreements were not minor, but a um, whole lot about fear. Yeah. Like we could go down a whole rabbit hole there talking about leaders versus people. So I'll, I'll probably just leave that there. But in this particular case, Luke, I appreciate Luke at this stage of the game, is making clear that the chief, that the leaders feared the response of the people. 
if they just grabbed him and stoned him. Okay. Okay. So, verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be honest (laughs) in order to trap him by what he said so as to hand him over to the jurisdiction and authority of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, uh, we know that you are right in what you say and teach, and you show deference to no one, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose head and whose title does it bear? They said, The emperor's. He said to them, Then give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people, (laughs) okay, because the people are still on Jesus' side here, uh, to trap him by what he said. And being amazed by this answer, they became silent. So that's the second challenge. So the first challenge is about authority. Second, um, the second challenge is actually a related challenge. It's specifically about taxes, but it's also kind of about authority. And the church has always, um, I mean, frankly, struggled with this with this question: um, to what do we owe human authority, and to what do we owe God's authority? Like. Paul wrestles with this too. Paul says, you know, respect your leaders. They're appointed by God. Well, not every one of them. <laughs> I mean, we, and we might have differences of opinion about which ones were not and which ones were. But, I mean, I think we all would agree. There, there have been, uh, throughout history, regardless of what our political opinions are, um, you know, people who are in human power that were not doing things that are of God. But in this first century, in the mid to late first century, um, you had to get along with Rome if, you were, if, the, if the church was going to survive. You had to figure out a way to do it. And the history of the, of the church's relationship to Rome in particular is actually pretty complicated. We know Constantine is the one who, in the fourth century, early fourth century, um, converts Christianity, legalizes Christianity, uh, his mama was a Christian. That's often the way he goes. And so he, he came around eventually. Um, but on and off up to that early 4th century, like 325 in that, in that area, so three, for 300 years, it was real hit and miss. Uh, sometimes the church was fine and could build churches, and bishops were respected in local communities. Sometimes they were tortured to death, and the churches were burned or used as stables for the emperor. I mean, it was, it was tough. Uh, and so... What the church had to wrestle with, and, you, and we see this in uh, some of the epistles, we see this in Revelation for sure, um, and then, I mean, even at this early point in Jesus' ministry, the, the question of how God's people relate to uh, human authorities is it's just not a straightforward answer. In this particular case, he's, um, he's making a point. This is really about them trying to catch him in something that's going to turn the people on him. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't fall for it. And then the last one, 
the last uh, question, challenge, is about the resurrection. So some Sadducees, verse 27, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked a question. So just a note here. So the Sadducees emphasized the, uh, the religion and the spirituality of the Torah, the first five books. And there's nothing about resurrection in those first five books. So this is, you know, what, ha- what happens after we die is a notion that um, it evolves throughout the history of the Old Testament. It's, it's even kind of evolving in the New Testament. But for Sadducees who focused on those first five books, it was about righteous living here and now, which was following the law that God had given us um, through Moses. So they want to know, as educated religious folk with a particular perspective on things, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, the first married and died childless, and the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. This is a ridiculous question, right? And it's a ridiculous question because they don't believe it anyway. <laughs> they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they're, they're trying to talk, catch him on this. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. It's pretty nice, actually. It's a pretty nice interpretation. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you've spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him another question. Why? they feared the people, right? I mean, he, he, is, he is, his entire ministry, his entire earthly ministry, he's charismatic for sure, but he's captivating and he's, he's telling what people perceive to be the truth because it is in fact the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's in the Gospel of John, of course. And so um, the issue here is not with Jesus and the Jews, Right? Does that make sense? It's not the Jews that are the problem. There's um, Let's see how I want to put this. Um, So even though this author is a Gentile, almost certainly, he he has a high view of Jewish tradition. So he is a He's not writing like Paul. Paul converts as like a Pharisee among Pharisees, right? He says, I'm the best Jew that ever lived, basically, in Galatians. And I'm telling you, the law doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) So he's a convert from a different religion, and sometimes converts from different religions become the harshest critic of their old religion, (laughs) right? Think of what you choose to leave behind. If you choose to leave something behind, it's because you've got strong opinions about that which you are leaving behind. So Paul speaks with the authority of knowing very well the Jewish tradition, and he doesn't denigrate it. He doesn't do that. He, he, does, he says God is going to be faithful to the promise. He's very clear about that. Um, but he's also clear what is useful and what is not. 
But for this author, we've talked about this a few times, but it's really, really important. So he, there are three epochs of our salvation history for Luke. One is the era of Israel, one is the era of Jesus, and one is the era of the church. And the era of Israel is uh, the story that's told in the Old Testament. The story of Jesus, obviously, is told here in the Gospel. And the story of the church is going to be told in Acts, and we're still living in that third epoch. But he, he is not saying that this one is unimportant. He's not saying that Israel is unimportant. He's not as interested as Matthew is in, in citing and quoting Old Testament scriptures to talk about how Jesus fulfills them, because that's not his tradition. But he is very clear that God remains faithful to what God has done. And so the way I read these sections of Luke is that he's being very careful to um, clarify that Jesus ends up on the cross not because you got to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but because those in power had a vested interest in him not speaking anymore. (laughs) And I'm going on and on about this because, I mean, geez, like the whole thing with Ukraine, like like in the Orthodox tradition, and y'all know that I, well, you probably know, I'll say it again, I love the Orthodox tradition, I love the Orthodox Church, I've spent a lot of time in the Orthodox Church. But in the Divine Liturgy, there is a phrase... It's every week in the Divine Liturgy, talking about the cross being the shame of all the Jews. And that's um, coming from Matthew, the way Matthew tells the story. But that it's very problematic. (laughs) It's very problematic to say that. Because, first of all, the historical record is not at all clear that all the Jews wanted him on the cross. We'll get to to the Holy Week stuff where they say, crucify him, crucify him, you know, the, the crowd's... Is whip, the, the leaders are whipping up the crowd. That's some subset of people who were there, certainly. Um, but uh, that's not what our faith tells us. <laughs> what our faith tells us is that God did this thing first, Israel, and then God became one of us to clarify some things just so we couldn't get it wrong anymore, although Lord knows we still get it wrong. And then we're all living in this kind of dot, 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 this ellipsis here where uh, the Holy Spirit is with us until Jesus comes back someday. Um, So I'm going to leave that there for a minute. Does all that make sense? That's not a minor distinction. This is startling every time I heard it when I was in Orthodox churches. Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's something called the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And that is the, that Divine Liturgy is translated into um, multiple different languages. That's because that was before the split. And so in any, I've actually got one in my office right now. There's uh, in any, um, if you were to go to an Orthodox service, you would see um, some, like you would see part of the liturgy in an ancient language, and then you would see part of the language uh, liturgy in a modern foreign language for us, 
and then you would see part of the liturgy in English. I, I, I'm, not, I'm saying that wrong. You would see the same words printed three ways. And so, like in, um, in a Russian Orthodox church, this would be Church Slavonic. And this obviously would be Russian. And then this would be English. And so it's, it's printed side by side by side. Most of the, uh, depending on the, on the congregation, most of the um, priest's words are going to be in the, in the ancient language. If you're in a um, Coptic Orthodox church, this would be Copt, which is kind of a, it's a dead Arabic language, kind of like Latin is for us. Uh, and then Arabic, which is what they speak modern day in Egypt, and then English. But it's the same basic liturgy from uh, from John, St. John Chrysostom. Yeah, so that's a really good, it's a really interesting question. Um, partly. So when I was at Arapaho, we did a, um, I may have told you guys this already. I did a paper in, uh, when I was in, in my John class. Because John, the Gospel of John, and again, y'all know it's my favorite book of all time, most important book. So this is a disclaimer. This is not, I'm, I'm not trying to be overly critical of John, but there is a section there. Uh, we, we believe that John's gospel was being written at a time when Christians were being kicked out of the synagogue. And so, so later, it's later than, that was after the Jewish revolt. So, you know, Mark is before the Jewish revolt. These, uh, Luke and Matthew were written sometime around then, but before the separation. Because in the first century, uh, Christians met in synagogues. Do you all know this? So um, there came a point where that became untenable. And it was when Rome was kind of ratcheting up the pressure on Jews for the revolt, Christians were like, oh, maybe we need our own building. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, And so in John, it's that really, it's that really hard part about your father, the devil, you're, you're, you're the children of Satan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we did a panel discussion. There was a, at the time we had this theater at Arapaho. Um, and we used those as like community events to host, um, Dialogue, and I can't remember what the play was, but we did a, a thing where a rabbi and I talked about uh, how Christians can understand our connection to the Jewish faith and um, how we can kind of get past some of that ancient um, rancor. It's, I don't know if it's the otherness of Jewish communities, the insularity of Jewish communities. Um, in some cases, just rank jealousy. <laughs> over the success of Jewish communities. But they've been an easy target, or a, not an easy target, an obvious target for cultures since the time of Christ. And there have been times, you know, to the, something the church really needs to repent, where we've just played into that. It's been better for us if they bore the brunt of um, pogroms and all that. I mean, Russian history is full of anti-Jewish pogroms. Yeah, yeah, right? So, and where where did you hear that from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I would say, this is one of those curious things where, like I, so, if the theological spectrum runs from, you know, very literalists, which is a, a very recent development, okay, this is like late 1800s, all the way to these, um, I mean, I guess at this hand would, end would be super progressive folk, but uh, somewhere in here would be 
kind of, I would say, I would argue, an orthodox reading of Scripture. And, and orthodox reading, of, and when I say orthodox, I don't mean Eastern Orthodox. I mean traditional Christian reading of Scripture. Um, I mean, the fact that we have four Gospels that don't all agree with each other means that we're fine holding some things in tension. But what's interesting is that anti-Semitic um, impulse, maybe is the word, transcends theological differences. And so you do get a fair amount of it in kind of a literalist reading of Scripture because it's there. And then part of this is the history of the power struggle. Just like, just like Jewish Christian leaders had an issue with Jesus, so any Christian leader that has something to lose and or something to gain and is not acting in a Christ-like way uh, can abuse that power. But it's just so important. You know, Holy Week is such a, it's, it's a really important time to remind ourselves that this was not, I mean, <laughs> the crowds followed him. The crowds believed him. The crowds came to him for healing. Those are Jews. Those aren't pagans. Pagans come later. They join the party later. So there were plenty of people that really resonated with what he said. But like any other movement, if you kill the leader, that can sometimes effectively kill a movement. The miracle of Christianity is that it didn't. And we told the craziest story about this guy who rose from the dead. (laughs) That's a great story. Okay, so um, let's press on. So verse 41 Then he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? And what he's saying here is just David's son. Okay. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how can he be his son? He's making the case here that the Messiah is not going to be who you think the Messiah is going to be. You think the Messiah is going to come and it's going to be a son of David in the sense of an earthly king who's going to throw off the rule of the Romans. I know that's what everybody's expecting. By the way, that's going to happen. It's going to take a few centuries, and it's going to be much more comprehensive than what you think. That part is always confusing, That this whole section here. In the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Beware of those yahoos who think they're all religious and tell you how religious they are. He's saying. And again, he's like the, uh, that diagram a minute ago. The people, those, those who are oppressed, those on the margins, the poor, the scribes who are going to get me killed aren't your friend either. <laughs> he's saying. I mean, that's just a direct confrontation at this highly tense moment in his ministry. And then he looked up. And he saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Now, I always like to remind people there, or point out there, he doesn't say that's a good idea. (laughs) He doesn't say give everything you have. Again, it's a very nuanced message about giving. This gets back to the thing with Zacchaeus and the rich ruler. It's not about 
whether you give 100% of what you have or 50% of what you have, the question is, are you devoted? <laughs> like, where is your heart? For the scribes, uh, their heart is with making themselves feel good by long prayers and showy devotion. And he's saying, in, as they're doing that, they're oppressing everyone. So don't fall for that. Don't fall for that piousness. Make sense? When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Of course, that exactly comes to pass. They asked him, teacher, when will this be and what will the sign be that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors because of my name. Now, by the time Luke is writing this, all of this has happened. Okay, so he is, just as a reminder, I mean, he's writing in probably 85, something like that, uh, A.D. Jesus is speaking in 30 A.D., and there's all this that's happened in here. There's the fall of Rome. Uh, by this point, Nero has you know, crucified Christians and set them on fire to light the road to Rome. I mean, that some bad stuff has happened. And so, um, uh, I mean, I, I personally believe this is what Jesus said, because Jesus is God. <laughs> but he, Luke is writing with the knowledge of what has passed. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance. For I'll give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends. All that happened. <laughs> and they'll put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. We're going to get into it. We talked about this a little bit last week. So apocalyptic literature, in, the, uh, in this case an apocalyptic vision. There's one message of apocalyptic vision. <laughs> Hang in there. <laughs> Hold on. Keep the faith. He's not saying... Um, not a hair of your head will perish, literally. Because, I mean, the Romans gruesomely killed Christians in the Colosseum. He's talking about the long game, <laughs> right? Um, and the reason that we can have the faith to hang in there is that God will make it right in the end. Like, the Romans may have the upper hand now. They certainly did in 85 when Luke was writing this. And they would for another couple centuries, few centuries. Um, but 
either in this lifetime, uh, in the lifetime of your grandchildren and grandchildren's grandchildren, or at the end of all things, God is going to make it right. And the Romans ultimately will not prevail. So he goes on. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. And Luke knows very well that was true. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those inside the city must leave it, and those out in the country must not enter it. For these are days of vengeance, as a fulfillment of all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. When the Romans recaptured a conquered city, I mean, they would slaughter everyone. Right? I mean, they were they would... Uh, sexually assault the women before they killed them or sold them off into slavery. I don't know if you guys have read much coverage out of Ukraine, but this, like, what, let's not think that this was just a Roman thing. This is a human thing. This is an evil human thing. They'll fall by the edge of the sword and be taken away as captives, captives among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. But the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. What are you saying? That's the whole point of apocalyptic literature. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, and on earth distress among nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And that is awesome. So we, we need to read this as though we are part of a community um, that is experiencing what he's describing. I mean, that's the point of apocalyptic literature. Revelation is exactly the same thing. It's more vivid in some ways. It's more, it's more, um, there's more kind of rich metaphorical language because it's a full, a full book, but it's the same basic point. When all that starts to happen, stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. When the lions are closing in on you in the Colosseum, young pregnant girl, you can with confidence look up to heaven because that's your, that's your final destination. And you can understand why that would be a very affirming word. I mean, we, we can read it from the comfort of 21st century Christian America and think, gosh, that's dark, Jesus. But, you know, we're not, real, at, at, we're not who he has in mind here. Necessarily. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As, uh, as soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. Father Reed, the priest that I loved growing up. Woo, man, he could preach a sermon on this one. Now, he was not a great preacher. Wonderful human being. Not a great preacher. But when it came to a homily on be prepared because Jesus is coming back any day, he definitely got my attention. I remember that all these years later. Uh, truly, I tell you, this generation, uh, yeah, okay, 34, uh, no, 35, yeah, okay, 35, like a trap. So, for it will 
it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Hebrews, the way Hebrews puts it is, there is one to whom we must render an account. I love that. When I read of you know, terrible things humans do to each other, some humans do to each other, that, that verse is of great consolation to me. <laughs> because there's, there's a reckoning. Every day he was teaching in the temple, and at night he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives, as it was called. And all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him. Where? In the temple. Right? It's all over. Once, you, once you're looking for it, the temple's all over this gospel. That's the, his last teaching. He ends with us with a real stem winder. <laughs> Paul was in the same, um, the same kind of vein. Paul believed that Jesus was coming back uh, any day. So, so apocalyptic eschatology is um, that view. Eschatology means the theology of the last things. And what apocalyptic eschatology um, emphasizes is the return of Christ and Judgment Day, that there that this final reckoning. And there were lots of Christians in the first century who had an apocalyptic worldview. Like they they felt like Jesus had God had become one of us in Jesus, so they wouldn't put it like that. That Jesus had come to usher in the kingdom, and that the final consummation of all things was going to be like any minute. And what happens? is something that scholars call the delay of the parousia. Parousia was actually a phrase used for the emperor um, for when he would enter uh, a village, like the announcement, like the big when the emperor came to your town, it was a big deal. The parousia came to be co-opted by the church to mean the second coming of Christ. And so when the first generation of Christians began to die off and he wasn't back yet, there started to be this um, anxiety about, well, what, what's going to happen if we die before he comes back? Like, are, are we going to be, are our souls in danger? And so the very first letter that Paul writes, and Paul had a very ap- apocalyptic worldview, um, is First Thessalonians. It's the oldest book in the, in the New Testament. And he's addressing this question. So we expect him to come back any time. Whether Jesus said that or Luke added that to Jesus' words, it's, it's unclear. Um, whether, you know, Jesus said a lot of things that were kind of tough, tough to interpret. I mean, we've been down that road. Some of the parables you have to read between the lines. And um, did he say that? And But he didn't really literally mean that. I mean, who knows? It's out there. Um, and so what Paul says in First Thessalonians is, uh, don't worry about that that the dead in Christ will be the first to be resurrected. So the question of of when Jesus, when Christ would return has been um, was a source of anxiety among some Christians very early on. And you can see why, right? I mean, he seems to say, this generation will not pass away before I come back. Now, the other thing I'd point out here is that our understanding of time and God's understanding of time are very different. God's got a much more, well, God's got the eternal time horizon. 
And we just think of, well, I'm 51 now. I mean, I got 30 years. So is he going to come back for, or however long, 50 years, however long I will live? My the clock's ticking, you know. So is, if he doesn't come back, what's going to happen to me? That's our. That tends to be our first concern. But it's definitely part of the that first century theology. There's no question about that. Um, what I what I brought up yesterday was there is another vision of this, another vision of eschatology, and that's realized eschatology. And that's where, like in uh, John's Gospel. Jesus says, eternal life is believing in me. Because that fundamentally changes, like that qualitatively changes our life. And then, of course, we have eternity with God, no question about that. But uh, I would say the farther we get into the church's life, the less of an emphasis there is on this apocalyptic eschatology. The little apocalypse is not my favorite part of the teaching. (laughs) It's there, you got to deal with it. It's reality, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely, I believe that. Yeah. And th- there's a, that I quoted a movie. Uh, it will be all, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not, if it's not all right, it's not yet the end. I, I mean, that's, I absolutely believe that. Um, you know, there are some, uh, some theologians, uh, and these tend to be kind of more on the progressive side, who would say the second coming happened at the resurrection. I'm too much of an Orthodox Christian for that. I mean, I, I think you can make a case for it. I respect it. But um, I just, you know, I don't know. You just read. Have you all read any weekend coverage of the war? Like what they're finding in these villages that the Russians are abandoning? I mean, it's it's just evil. It's just evil is all it is. And uh, I just have a hard time believing that he's not coming back to fix all that at some point. Now, what the book of Revelation will say And again, we're going to get to that like in 18 years or so on our timeline. (laughs) What the book of Revelation says is that, you know where heaven's going to be? The new Jerusalem's going to be here. That that God's creation is going to be renewed. So when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, we mean that literally. We mean there's going to be a restoration of all things. And I'm talking about the ancient, creedal, orthodox Christianity um, right here. We tend to think of heaven as someplace up there. Someplace we go, pearly gates, you know, we get to be with our dogs and our family and our kids and all that um, after we die. And that's, I'm not minimizing that. But the in Revelation, what it says is that uh, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven uh, and that Christ will come, uh, let's see, that the new, as a bride adorned for her husband is the description of the new <laughs> Jerusalem. And um, that that restoration, when it happens, um, God will make all things new. There'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more weeping, no more mourning, no more pain, no more sin. And I think that's, I mean, it's going to be good no matter what, but that's what I'm putting my money on. (laughs) Okay. So next week does start the heaviest week of the year, for sure. But um, I, I hope that you're able to make either online or in person the Monday Thursday and, and Good Friday services are so good. They're so meaningful. Um, the music's gonna be fantastic. I don't I don't really dig pe- preaching services like I've never I've never preached those services because I think the liturgy and the music and the prayers and the readings all speak for itself. I don't feel like you need a pastor explaining to you what's happening. Um, 
And so for me, it's like a, I just get to experience it with everybody, which I really love. And then, of course, Super Bowl Sunday, Easter. So, all right, friends. God bless you. Thanks.